Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, Kitchen Chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Hello, dear foodie friends, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is your host, Margaret McSweeney, and I'm so glad you're joining me in my kitchen today. And during this time, we wanted to share with you comfort food and comfort mood, as the co-host, Chef Jamie Larita likes to refer to it. So, Chef Jamie, thank you for being here. Always, Margaret. It's always, always a pleasure to be on Kitchen Chat with you. Oh, and and you're in your kitchen, right? I'm always in my kitchen. When am I not in my kitchen? <laughs> that is if true. I'm not in my kitchen, Margaret, I'm in like another room thinking about how I need to get back in my kitchen. <laughs> that is true. The mind of a chef, for sure. Well, Chef Jamie and your foodie friends, we are just in for a treat today. We have, as our special guest, Fanny Singer, who is the daughter of Alice Waters, and she has a new book out called Always Home, a daughter's stories and recipes. And welcome to Kitchen Chat, Fanny. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Oh, well, such a highlight of my culinary journey through Kitchen Chat. And, and Jamie's heard the story a lot, but I don't think you've heard it, Fanny. The reason I do the show is a way to honor my late father, who was an incredible home chef, and he passed away 30 years ago. And my biggest regret in life was not being able to really cook in the kitchen with him. I never had or took the time to do that. And it's my way to understand what his joy in the kitchen and joy of food was all about. And I love that you are living your joy and sharing the joy with your wonderful mother, Alice Waters. And Jamie, I don't know if I ever shared with you the story. I actually um, was able to have a kitchen chat with Chef Alice Waters at Chez Panisse. And that was such yeah, a Yeah, Margaret, you, you, told me, you told me the story. It was like the most jealous moment. I think one of the most jealous moments I ever had in my life. <laughs> I, rem- I remember it. Well, maybe we can all have a kitchen chat together again in the near future with the four of us. So that will be fun. But meanwhile, what an honor and delight to have you on the show, Fanny. And I can't wait to hear about what really inspired you to write this book, Always Home. You know, I think it really the, the sort of kernel of inspiration was working on the pantry book from 2015 uh, with my mom. And that was, um, it was the first time I kind of exercised that kind of cookbook writing or recipe writing muscle and got really involved in the collaborative capacity with my mom. I did not ever imagine that I was going to be a cook. I still don't think of myself as really a cook, certainly not a professional cook. And I never really thought that I would get into the trade, the family trade, really, um, although cooking has always been a passion of mine. Um, but then working on this book with my mom, which I co-wrote and illustrated, um, and then also spending the time, you know, both in the collaborative process. I was um, living in England all the time, and I lived in England for 11 years from 2006. Um, 
it, it was this way to com- communicating through food and about these recipes and about the illustrations was this way of feeling close to my mom. And I mm. had, you know, very intentionally gone far away from Berkeley to study and to figure out kind of what I wanted to do with my life and what I was interested in. But um, I never lost um, that really, the intensity and, and intimacy of our connection. And, that, and then it was sort of intensified even more by the process of working together on that book. Um, so it's not that I was so much like waiting, waiting, waiting to write this book as it kind of, I kind of walked backward into this, the opportunity of it or, or the moment suddenly seemed right to reflect even more on what my experiences had been, um, growing up in this environment. Um, and then the recipes weren't so much about how I cook now, although many of them are things that I do really love and rely on regularly so much as it was a look back almost archaeologically at what had been the foundations of uh, my palate and how I came to taste and think about food and think about atmosphere and aesthetics and all of the things that surround the experience of eating in the way that I do. Wow. Is like a sneak peek into, into a quick story or a quick memory that you can share with our audience that might help us, like maybe as a, an amuse to the book? I would say that the book kind of has different types of stories in it. They're all, well, first of all, we can acknowledge that Always Home is an absurdly prescient book title. Yes. <laughs> but yes. Um, almost to the point where a few friends were like, did you, did you do this on purpose? Was this, did you know... But I, but we've all, I've had a, a number of conversations with people who said that one of the things that has been so great about reading this book right now is the stories are very transporting, but also very short. And so they kind of you don't need to necessarily dedicate hours and hours and hours or days and days and days to feel like you're you're remaining immersed in the book. It kind of rewards even the short attention span of the moment. So that said, the stories are kind of different in style. Some are things I remember in a crystalline capacity that have dialogue, that are a narration of a kind of, usually some kind of absurd happening on the road with my parents when I was younger. Um, a car sick, a car sickness episode that nonetheless resulted in me moments after throwing up requesting the lobster salad at a restaurant in Paris, outside of Paris. I love it. I love it. Which I think is, you know, that's kind of in a way that's the, that's the fodder that people expect, I think, mm-hmm. of a child of, that comes right. from such culinary eminence. But on the other hand, the stories I think actually are for the most part really relatable because they're about how we all use our senses and how my mom, especially having a Montessori school uh, training, she was intent on getting me to interact with the world in a very sensory way. And so there you can, even if you haven't tasted some of these tastes or you haven't tried some of these dishes, I think you can conjure an image of what it might taste like to eat, if you're eating this green salad or you're having or you're smelling burning rosemary or, you know, that there's a very, um, I would like to think that reading it almost, there's almost a tactility to it, like a kind of scratch and sniff kind of writing. I love that. So I'm very curious, Fanny, what is your distinct childhood taste memory from, as you say, a mother who is eminent, whose eminence is known in the culinary? What 
is your favorite taste memory from childhood? Well, there's one that is very, very pristine in my mind. And there's a story called First Fragola, which is a um, an account of when I was very little. It's only two and a half. But I remember the first time I had sugar, and it was in a strawberry gelato in Italy. And the flavor of that was so extraordinary. I never, I really had not, I had a childhood basically devoid of sugar. My mom had completely positioned herself against (laughs) its introduction to my early uh, palate. And so when I first tried it, it was, it was sort of hallucinatory. Oh my God. I can't even imagine (laughs) what it was like. I mean, I, I lived in Italy and I'm Italian by descent, but like to not have sugar as, a child that had to be an explosion in your mouth. <laughs> it was, well, I remember just, and I, I went to my mom and I was like, did I, is there a photo of this? Like, do, how do I remember this? I just, I, I was like, it's a very faint. I kind of remember choosing the ice cream flavor. I really loved strawberries. So I selected strawberry, but that's all I remember of the entire vacation. I mean, there's nothing. And actually I don't really have many other concrete memories for years afterwards, but this was so profound. And yet, I will say there was something about its exceptionalness that uh, meant that I I didn't think that it was going to be something that I experienced all the time. And I never, and my palate is very savory. I'm not a sweet person at all. So it's almost kind of odd to invoke the gelato as, as the defining palate moment. But it's just one that I remember from very, very early on. My my defining palate now tends towards garlic. <laughs> like that's how I would describe it. All of the people that are so immersed in art, I feel, have a passion for food. And yes. I yeah, traveled I with th- a lot of musicians, Sarah McLaughlin and Madonna and Sting and the Chili mm-hmm. Peppers. You name it, every genre of music. But they're all such big foodies. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I mean, my mom has always said that she thinks the best chefs that she's known are, are really artists. And she mm-hmm. means that not in that kind of, you know, sort of empty platitude in this way, but like actually they are artists in their lives, the way that they arrange everything around them and the way that they create things. It requires compulsion and the need to just get up and make something and make and think creatively and intuitively all the time in a way that kind of endlessly renews. I mean, I studied art, fine art when I was in college and I, uh, alongside art history and I, and I just, I had a very, you know, good draftsman, sort of quality of draftsmanship. And I like knew how to kind of do things technically. And I would just, you know, have inspirations come to me, but I didn't have what I felt like was the driving blinding compulsion to make art that is required of a truly great artist. And I was so interested in what qualities drive people. And I think probably also without really thinking about it was inspired by my mother who is just completely, um, absolutely blindingly focused on what she is making with the edible schoolyard, with food justice and with, uh, the, unbendable code of ethics around the way that she thinks operates and serves food and that there's something about her drive and compulsion that I was interested in studying on some level. And that's, that's, I think what led me in part into art history um, to look at how other artists in another medium were also being driven by kind of unquenchable 
um, compulsion. And, and yet I, I know exactly who she's thinking about when she's talking about the artists, these artist cooks. And like two of them, I wrote chapters about in the book. One of them is David Tannis, who's one of the great, great chefs who come, came up through Chez Panisse, but we kind of come, stay, leave, come back, has um, been involved in a number of other restaurants and has some of my favorite cookbooks around. And the other is Nilifer Chaporia King. Hmm. Um, who never uh, cooked at Shapenies or I think anywhere professionally. She was a culinary anthropologist, but she does helm the kitchen every um, Parsi New Year at Shapenies and cooks this incredible Indian meal um, in the downstairs restaurant. And I just, those two people have that quality. And it's like you go into their homes and it's no surprise that everything's kind of beautiful and there's a bouquet of scented roses and, you know, just all of the components that make the entire environment feel considered and, and rich. Everything matters. I, w- I, I knew you were going to say that, Jamie. That is your logo in life. Everything matters. Yes. <laughs> Truly. Right. I'm so curious, Fanny, in writing this book, was there anything that ended up surprising you? Uh, throughout your journey of discovery, what surprised you most in writing this? Actually, like, <laughs> this is kind of one of those really obnoxious things that writers say. They're like, it's just so, like, easy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I won't say quite, it wasn't quite that easy. I just, I write a lot of, you know, I have written a PhD in art history and I also write a fair amount of art criticism and I do cultural reportage. Um, and just recently was on the masthead at Wall Street Journal magazine and and I um and that writing there's something about writing in that vein that I always I feel like I need to be so accountable to the facts you know to things that are outside of my own perception even if I'm writing a review it's like I want to make sure I've read every other review about artists ever or that I know I've really spent time with the literature and there's this fastidiousness that also is um, is sort of encumbering because you have to, it feels like you have to get through so much before you can begin. Mm-hmm. And I think there was something about this writing because I was only accountable to myself, really. It was my memories, you know, and I didn't even feel like I needed to ask my mother permission for anything because it wasn't a story that was in her voice. Um, and of course I let her read the manuscript and veto anything. Not that this book was in any way expository. So I didn't really expect her to say, like, please take this out. But it is, it turns intimate. You know, it's very, very much an intimate portrayal of our relationship. But I, to be able to sit down and just write from memory and write a, a very different type of narrative and to write in this nonfiction capacity in this not quite autobiography, but, but nonetheless in that vein and to feel that yes, frictionless experience of writing where there was not all these impediments was a joy. Like I just loved writing this book, even though I was doing it alongside other work and it took me because of that, it took me close to two and a half or three years to really put together in its entirety. It just was a pleasure and it was a pleasure to visit these, these people and these places again um, because the book does take us around the world a bit um, to meet other characters, especially in France. Can you do any kind of uh, podcast? Because you speak in violin. Like when listening to you speak, <laughs> it's, it's actually that you're one of the people that I'm going to put on the list of people who speak in violin. Like it's like <laughs> listening. 
a lovely thing to say. Um, you, well, you have just perfectly plugged, Jamie, perfectly plugged my audio book. Yes. <laughs> for anyone who doesn't You're welcome, Tony. Yes, thank you. That was quite the endorsement. But I did read, I, I couldn't imagine, like, having anyone else read the book. So I said, sure, I, I guess. Like, I guess I'll read it. So You would I be crazy not to, let, not to read your own. But no, like I, I know, said. especially be, I know, with an, but with an autobiography too, or something, or memoir or something in that vein, I think it especially feels necessary if you're willing yes. to just right. commit to doing it because it's otherwise I think it would feel very foreign. But I managed to do that just right before the pandemic. I mean, like mm. I snuck in my like last pickups, um, so that the book could actually launch on audio at the same time as it was both scheduled to on the same date as the book came out. Like, I can't, kind of can't believe that I did that, not even that long Yeah, well, Margaret, Margaret, what's your line right now? Oh. Say it. <laughs> well, it was my father's line. He would always say, God's trains run on time. So, That's good. Yes. Mm-hmm. I love how you speak so lovingly about your mom, and I'm sure it puts it into the framework of, you know, her as a parent versus in addition to her as this incredible culinary royalty lineage here. But I, I'm curious, Fanny, if you could share with those moms who are out there listening, what did your mom do really well and really right? from your perspective that you can share with them? That's a great question. Me included, so even with adult daughters. <laughs> you know, I think that um, the most important thing, and this is just, it will sound cliche, but it's true, is just to be unconditionally loving to your kid. And, I, you know, people have asked me, especially if my parents did divorce when I was uh, 13 or 14, um, you know, friends of mine who have kids who are getting divorced have asked me what, what they can do and how to navigate it. I'm like, just make sure your kid knows that you love them, that you love them no matter what. That's like absolutely nothing could prevent them from loving you, <laughs> like from you loving them and them loving you, that that bond is there. And of course, like I didn't, you know, I wasn't an angel as a, <laughs> as a teenager. It's like plenty of very minor skirmishes in our house, but it just, you know, I always felt an atmosphere uh, in which I was being really embraced and cradled by um, my mother's just unflagging love. Um, And she expressed that. I think, you know, I think sometimes the way to communicate that can become a little bit fraught when, you know, kids are going through difficult stages or whatever, but one of the great ways of doing that is through food because you easily communicate affection, I think, through that medium. And it's something that my mom did every single day. You know, she always made me something delicious and nutritious, whether it was, you know, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And in high school, when I was, you know, not, you know, wanting to sort of pull back, I still was opening these lunch boxes every day at school and she was making me something beautiful and writing me a little note. And, you know, I just, you know, so I think, I think, you know, ways of communicating that are outside of language hmm. are also really effective. And that can be, that can be in, in food and it can also be actually in, in the way that even space is organized. You know, my mom, I've been at my mom's house for the last few weeks because we've been quarantined with her. Uh-huh. And every day she hates that I have like my laptop on the kitchen table and she will like put it away <laughs> as soon as I step away from it. But 
if I if it's out and she knows I'm still working and she comes back from a walk, she'll place a little bouquet next to my computer every day. Oh. It renews a different bloom, just something tiny, you know, something insignificant that she picked up, but that maybe had a beautiful color or, an, or a really intoxicating smell. Oh. And that to me is exactly that type of gesture. It's saying like, we're here together and I love you. That is such a cute mom to do that. I know. She's mm. such a cute mom. What a cute mom <laughs> you have. She's a cutie. And she's so little, too, so she's extra cute. I have so enjoyed, Fanny, watching the videos that you and your mother uh, do together. I, there was one I was mesmerized by, particularly, about this historic egg spoon video. Can you share with the listeners about this egg spoon? Ah, yes. The legendary egg spoon. Um, This spoon was something that my mom read about in this book by William Rubel called The Magic of Fire. Um, And she was so interested to learn about this 17th century French culinary tool that supposedly was designed to fry an egg in a spoon in the fireplace. And I'm kind of imagining those huge hearths that you would have had in in 17th century France where there would be a fire day in, day out to heat the house. And usually those, like, homes, especially if there were, um, you know, some sort of elite, you know, people living in them, there would be stoves, like iron stoves as well, but those wouldn't usually be lit, I don't think, until later in the day because they took so much energy to fuel So I guess there was like some kind of iron spoon that could just be shoved right into the open hearth, you know, the hearth being kind of room-sized almost in those old houses. And and yet we hadn't, you know, we'd seen ladles and antique ladles and whatnot, but nothing quite quite designed for this purpose. So my mom asked her friend, the the Sicilian blacksmith named Angelo Garo, if he would consider making her one. And this was like in the early 90s, I think, maybe like 92 or something. And um, and Angelo made the spoon for her. And over the next, you know, decade plus, couple decades really, it became this really iconic implement in her kitchen. Um, And she would routinely make eggs for Leslie Stahl in 60 Minutes or any reporter coming through. And it's always held a fascination for anyone. Um, And also because my mother has just a truly unusual gift in terms of how she is in terms of fire cooking. I mean, she's really an incredible griller and she's very, very comfortable in front of the fire in a way that I aspire to be and yet don't even remotely resemble so or can't even touch but um this spoon was something that when i started this little design company called permanent collection um three about three years ago with my uh, friend mariah nielsen and as we um began to expand what we were doing making because we were making some clothing objects and also homeware and some design collaborations we were like these would be nice to have a kitchen a little kitchen collection, and the place to start seemed intuitively to be my mom's kitchen. Um, you know, what were her favorite pieces, and what were the pieces that were most iconic? And then there was the spoon. It's like, what if we remade the spoon? And um, <laughs> even went back to the original book and discovered that the drawing didn't really resemble what Angelo had made. And so we asked, we asked Sean. Lovell, who's the wonderful blacksmith who makes the spoon, because Angelo actually doesn't forge anymore. He's gotten out of the smithing business. 
Um, we asked Sean if she could make something that was a little closer to the illustration that had a perfectly round rather than oval cup. And it has hmm. the domed bottom and a long handle that's exactly flush mm-hmm. with the, uh, with the you know, uh, spoon so that you don't um, you can, it, you really hold it straight out and you don't, um, it's not like a ladle, there's no angle there. And then you crack an egg in there and it just does something magic. There's the way that the domed bottom, um, I think, distributes the heat around the white and the white just puffs up almost over the yolk. And you don't have to use a fire. We discovered that with the new spoons that we make for permanent collection, they're actually deep enough and um, that they can be used on a gas stove. So that was a wow. kind of new innovation too. But we we, uh, we, we have I, one I, egg left, one egg left in our quarantine <laughs> pantry. And we had been asked by Cherry Bomb to make a video of cooking with this egg spoon for the Jubilee that they had last Sunday. And I was like, Mom, don't fuck it up. <laughs> And I was like, you one shot. And, um, and so the video, which was filmed by my boyfriend, who is here in quarantine with us, um, is up on both of our Instagram feeds and on our, our IGTV. And to, it's, it's pretty hilarious. We, we're all, you know, we've all been in quarantine now for weeks. So we're all kind of like <laughs> lo- a little loopy. And then just the success of this egg was so, it was, it, energized us so much to see that it actually like worked perfectly. I mean, we knew, we knew that that the implement's a good implement, but still it was really funny. Oh, we'll make sure that we post that. I am curious. So what are you and your mom cooking during quarantine? Now we've had, um, some luck, you know, being in California, we just have access to such good produce and we are not really hurting for ingredients. I think the way that many are, um, and in in part because Japanese, when it closed, it needed to find a way to distribute the produce from Canard family farms, which supplies Japanese with most of its, um, its vegetables and fruits and relies entirely on Japanese to buy the, the product. So, um, we needed to help Bob and his son Ross stay alive out there mm-hmm. in Sonoma. So there are um, vegetable boxes that can be purchased. And it's not at all really keeping the restaurant afloat. It's more um, shoring up the uh, livelihoods of the farms and farmers that have been supplying Japanese for years. Um, but it means that we get really gorgeous box of things delivered once a week. Of course, we still run through the salad instantaneously because I could eat like just an inhuman amount every night. Um, I've had to, if anything, that's like that's where I feel like I've been hurting is I'm only allowed like one handful of leaves, which is hardly something to complain about in this context. So I'm wary, but um, but yeah, we've been we've been doing fine. Um, I think you know the the conditions of this time certainly make you think about how you use ingredients though and we have a compost um you know heap that we have in our back garden but i've been really rigorously uh insisting on keeping anything that's edible um in a little bag in the freezer so that i can make a stock so rather than jettisoning pumpkin seeds or radish tops or little bits of Eat or things that normally my mom wouldn't put in a traditional chicken stock we've been keeping um, to use um, in a vegetable stock um, or in a chicken stock or any kind of other stock. But it's, it's, I've been calling it the zero waste uh, veggie broth, but my mom, my mom calls it the compost broth. They, they have slightly <laughs> less delicious sounding uh, 
connotations, but it's been a way to just eke out all the different and um, all the nutrition really out of the ingredients that we do have, because there are things that are really scarce right now. Wow. Yeah, it's funny. I, I resonate with that as a, a chef myself, even finding, you know, I'm baking a lot at home, a lot of sourdough and stuff like that, but I'm like finding a use for every little crumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just makes you feel I, you like know, you want it. I just think yeah. it's, it's, well, it's smart cooking and I hope that people carry this, you know, into the next phase because it does stretch ingredients and it makes cooking more economical. And I mean, for instance, we're doing now, like, we're treating generally, we, you know, we're not going much to the grocery store. We're not getting, we're getting vegetable boxes, but we're not getting as many other types of ingredients or meat or anything. Um, and so if we have a chicken, you know, you take off the breasts and you have like pyard and then we, which is actually a recipe in the book. And then you, we will take off the legs and we'll braise those. And then finally the rest of the carcass goes into a, a um, stock pot and we make chicken soup from that. And I think, you know, and then you have a chicken soup and then the last remaining stock goes into a risotto and so forth. And I think really providential cooking is something that, um, we've just kind of lost touch with. And it's amazing how much like that feed that easily feeds three people because we're also thinking of meat more as a condiment. And so there are more vegetables on the plate and, um, and it stretches things for longer. And I would say like that generally was the way that we cooked, but not to this extent. I do feel like this, this time has, has shined more light on that way of, of treating ingredients and also just gratitude and reverence yes. for nature and for that farmers so and true. for local supply chains. Oh, wow. I'm just sitting here. I'm just like shaking my head back and forth thinking, why the hell am I not quarantined with them? Uh, that like, would be a like, great quarantine. <laughs> I tell you, that is. Or it should be. be some, it we're would, really bad bakers, okay? If it must be known, we're not. That's no, not where I we can bake. Listen, and I gather listen, that that I can is bake. I'm funny. <laughs> I can I can rearrange your furniture. There's so many things I can do. <laughs> you are amazing. Well, I cannot wait one of these days, Jamie, for both of us to go to Chez Panisse and just sit at a table with with family. I've been all around the world. You know that, Margaret. And yes. I cannot believe I've never been there in my life. Oh, I can't believe it. It's so special. And do you have a special memory about Chez Panisse throughout the years? I'm going to have to buy Always Home, man. Yes. Yeah, no, there's a memory in there. <laughs> well, we will, there, yes. Don't you worry about that. There is one chapter that's dedicated specifically to the restaurant. And, um, and just to talk, you know, the reason my mom wrote those children's books, Fanny at Chez Panisse, and then more recently Fanny at France, was because she sort of saw the way that I was living there, living at the restaurant really almost, because it was in parallel to the life that we had in, at home. And I think I just imagined that both spaces were more or less my home, you know, wow. as a kid. I didn't really, there wasn't much of a the difference. And I think she saw that as a kind of, you know, Eloise story, which is why she thought it might lend itself to making a children's book. But, you know, like the, there's a more fantastical tone to the way that the stories are told in Fanny at Chez But it really was kind of like that, you know, feeling totally free to ramble through that restaurant and kind of knowing exactly how to get from point A to point B fastest or like who would be likeliest to 
give me a sweet treat if I went into the pastry department <laughs> or my favorite thing to do was to go up to the bartender and it was it was mostly successful at lunchtime when there were just slightly more junior bartenders but I would convince them to give me a pint glass of just milk foam from oh. the cappuccino <laughs> I was like where was it going <laughs> I just loved foam I just milk foam oh. like the type that's on the, the top of the cappuccino but I hated the taste of coffee so I really only wanted like a glass of foam but it took I think like an entire quart or even maybe <laughs> half gallon or something of milk to make that much foam. So it was a complete, most uneconomical beverage I could have ordered. But if I was not being overly scrutinized by my mother, then I could get away with it. Oh, that is just beautiful. Always home with a taste of foam, I guess. Could be yeah. subtitle. I wouldn't mind a cappuccino machine in our house right now. I'm going yes. tell you. Well, I, I have one. I'm just letting you know. I may not have an egg spoon or Alice Waters in my house, but I have, I have a cappuccino machine. Oh. oh, well, this will be a fun future gathering for sure. But meanwhile, I always like to end Kitchen Chat with... Your top three tips for the home chef. Well, I really think getting a good mortar and pestle or Japanese surabachi or some sort is just indispensable. I think nailing a good salad vinaigrette is one of the great tools you can have as a cook because it kind of a good salad vinaigrette can go on everything, go on salad, but can also get drizzled over vegetables or whatever, really. And so I... I feel like it might be one of the things that my friends who are introduced to my cooking kind of what, what most resonates with them right away. Mm. It's like, they're like, what is this salad dressing? You know, and it's just a very simple kind of Japanese style pounded garlic dressing, but you need a good, you know, you kind of, you can't do it with a garlic press. You know, it bruises the garlic in a certain way and you can't really do it by just mincing it. And then, and I do, like, if I don't have a, a mortar and pestle, I'm traveling and we'll use the blade of a knife to smash it as much as possible. But I think like having a proper mortar and, uh, well, we, we, the reason I care about it so much that we made a, a sort of Japanese style surabachi as part of permanent collection because they're like, people need to have this tool. And I think, it's nice to have one that's hand-thrown because mostly they're kind of industrial ram-pressed ceramic pieces, but they're so, it's such a useful tool. It's nice to have a beautiful one. So yeah, I care cool. about that almost more than anything. <laughs> and then I guess the other thing that I think of right now, and I, I think it's because my mom has this one knife, this one Japanese knife that's just very sharp, and I've just been loving cooking <laughs> with it because it's so just easy to... Um, to chop things and chop garlic, which I'm doing constantly. Yeah. I think maybe my other tip is just use more garlic, but then also have a good knife to cut it with. <laughs> we're best friends. I don't know if you know this, Fanny, but we're best friends. Yes, you all. I'm, I resonate with all that. Me. Well, thank you so much for being on Kitchen Chat thank today. You. This has just been wonderful. And Jamie, so as always, fun. thank you. And, and foodie friends, we'll make sure we post a link to Always Home, A Daughter's Recipes and Stories by Fanny Singer. Also, We'll have a link to her website, fannysinger.com, and also to her permanent collection. I love the, the items that she has featured there. Just beautiful. Make sure you check Thank out you her. Thank you so much. Oh, 
and make sure you check out her virtual events as well. Those are coming up and hopefully in-person book tours <laughs> soon. But um, thank you to both of you. And thank, thank you. Oh, and thank you, dear foodie friends, for joining me on Kitchen Chat. Please visit me in my kitchen, kitchenchat.info. And always remember to take a moment and savor the day. Thanks for joining Margaret for Kitchen Chat today. Margaret would be so excited for you to drop by and visit with her at kitchenchat.info, where you'll enjoy podcasts, blogs, recipes, tips from chefs, and even great giveaways. She invites you to share your recipes and kitchen stories, too. As Margaret always says, savor the day.